0: This episode is made possible by our supporters on Patreon, where you can get access to additional content, a pastor and a philosopher swag, and more. You can become a supporter for as little as $3 a month, but if you're in the Milwaukee region, you'll want to join as a top-shelf supporter so you're sure to receive your invite to our in-person, live tasting events. Picture that for a moment. A pastor, a philosopher, you, and a whole bunch of other similarly enjoyable people walk into a bar. That's a very long title for an event, but you definitely won't want to miss it. Our first tasting event is rapidly approaching, so time is short. All Top Shelf Patreon supporters as of Saturday, May 8th will receive an invite. That's two days from this episode release, so pop over now to patreon.com slash a pastor and a philosopher to lock in your spot. We'll see you there.
1: Well, friends, welcome to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. We're so excited to share some time with you, community, and, and be together. We've got a fun guest to share with you today, and we've got also a fun beverage to share with you today. Today we are drinking Jameson Irish Whiskey Caskmates, the Stout Edition. Kyle, do you know anything about yeah, this?
2: So before you judge us for drinking Jameson, this exactly. is an interesting Jameson. Uh, No, I had never heard of this before today. I had no idea Jameson did anything like this. Yep. And for all you
1: whiskey snobs out there who are dredging us, like, good for you. That's fine. You can do that. But I hope to have more like, you know, lowbrow. And Jameson's not lowbrow, but it's just not awesome you know people do shots with jameson but i hope to have yeah. more not awesome whiskeys just to see what we think about them and see it's,
2: i've never you said that, that, that sentence. Every day. <laughs> i think it'd be I'd fun like more not awesome things
0: <laughs> so i need to break this down like piece by piece so like an irish whiskey what's the definition
2: well it's made in ireland That's, that, that's,
1: it. <laughs> that's well that's no, pretty much. It. yeah i mean it's made in ireland it does have its own flavor to it now i, I you whiskey snobs write us in, email us, and tell us all about why Irish whiskey is unique. But um, I'm sure it has to do with the um, the grains that are used in the grain, the the mash bill is what they call it, I believe. Where how much how much yeah. how much wheat, how much barley, how much corn? Bourbon's heavy corn. I don't think Irish whiskey is, and it probably has to do something with what they're aged in. Now this is a fun, unique. Irish whiskey because it's been aged in stout barrels, or finished I would say, in stout barrels, and that is yeah. at a distillery in Cork, Ireland, called Franciscan Well, I believe, right Kyle? Nice.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I couldn't find any information about how long it spent in the stout barrels, but finished is probably a good way to think about yeah. it. So, can I take a drink yet?
1: Go for it, yeah. I mean, I'm interested to see how different it is than regular Jameson, which...
2: Yeah, I mean, or Irish whiskey in general, exactly. that's probably... A class of world whiskeys, that's the one I'm probably the least familiar with.
1: See, now this smells more like a bourbon than a Irish, or sim- more similar to a bourbon than an Irish whiskey to me, because, perhaps, because of the stout finish.
0: Even for a bourbon, this would be sweet, though. This is really sweet.
2: I should have Googled Irish whiskey before I did this so I could sound smart and tell you what makes it different <laughs> from all mm. the other ones. I this seem is... to remember hearing something about there being like a double distillation method that is unique to Ireland. Okay. But I could be totally wrong about so that. So this bottle says triple distilled. Maybe it's that. They distill more than other yeah. places.
1: Yeah, triple distilled. I had the pleasure of being in Dublin, Ireland this last October, and everything is Jameson around there. But I, this is by far, I would say, actually, the most pleasant Irish whiskey I've ever had. <laughs> Um, <laughs> meaning all the other ones were actively unpleasant or? <laughs> no 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 I, I mean I like this is what I'm saying Irish whiskey yeah. I'll drink like I, when I was in Ireland I drank Irish whiskey because that's all they've got that's well that's all, not mm-hmm. all they got but I did find myself drinking some makers when I was in Belfast but hmm. when, in, when in Ireland drink some Irish whiskey so I did that sure this is better than the Irish whiskey I had there including Jameson or Pow- Powers or Tellemar Dew
2: sure yeah interesting I've got some pretty good ones uh, for maybe future podcasts. Do you? I'll, I'll introduce you to. I do. Um, so this one, the the stout is like a punch in the face. It's way more present than I expected. It's
1: delicious, actually. I like yeah. that. I, I don't. would like not st- have
2: guessed this was an Irish whiskey at all.
1: Yeah, me neither. I, I don't like stouts and the overly sweet stouts, mm-hmm. but it works with whiskey. That's nice.
2: Yeah, it just gives it kind of a chocolate finish.
1: Mm hmm. Mm hmm.
2: Is about all. But it's very, very present.
1: Yeah, and I would say Irish whiskey in general isn't as complex in my in my estimation as a bourbon yeah. or a Scotch for sure.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are you know there are some exceptions to that, but you have to pay for them. <laughs> yeah,
1: I just realized that my for sure showed highlighted my Wisconsin, you know native <laughs> oh, native. Yeah. Oh yeah. So <laughs> Jameson Irish whiskey castmates the stout edition. I would say. Yeah. Pastor and a philosopher walking to a bar, recommended. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Cheers. Thumbs up. Our guest today is Dr. Nicholas Ashman. I'm going to just call him Nick, if that's all right. Uh, Nick and I go way back. He's a good friend of mine. We started the PhD program at Marquette University together at the same time. Uh, so Nick is a great friend, but he's also a great scholar. He is a specialist in medieval Islamic philosophy, uh, specializing in a guy named Al-Farabi. Uh, maybe he'll come up later. I don't know. Uh, but the book he's working on is a little bit broader than that. So it's it's rooted in medieval Islamic philosophy, but also has uh, sort of some connections, some really interesting and relevant connections, I think, to politics and even to religion and to some of the stuff that we care about on this podcast. So we've invited him here to talk to us about certainty and uh, what you might call intellectual humility and I know you've got a lot of thoughts on that because we've talked about it a lot. So we're really glad to have you here, Nick. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Thanks for
3: having me. I'm excited to be talking with you guys.
1: In, now, what should I call you? Dr. Nick? Nick? Dr. Ashman? N-
3: Nick is preferable. Thank you. <laughs> yeah,
1: I like Dr. Nick a lot, though. It's
3: Yeah, it's two <laughs> Simpsons.
2: <laughs> it kind of has a sensual vibe, though. I don't know. If it's it is kind right of like an after-hours kind of doctor, you know what I mean? If
3: if anyone has met me, you know that I do not have a sensual vibe, so it does not fit at all. All
1: right, Nick, you got it.
3: By the way, uh, I just want to warn you, I'm pretty sure Kyle invited me on the podcast just so that way he can start being meaner on the podcast <laughs> and it'll look less mean in comparison. So uh, if I'm a little bit of cervic, forgive me.
1: I like it. No, I could... I, just by Kyle's like description of you, Nick, I just had this feeling like I I think I could easily take an angle that will just make it very contrarian. And, and, and Kyle was like, yeah, that probably wouldn't be too hard. We we could do that.
3: Yeah, I, <laughs> I'm joking.
1: I, I don't want to do that.
3: <laughs> I, I'm not sure if I've met someone that's taken an angle around me that isn't contrarian. So I, th- <laughs> I think you're going to slide into it. It's fine.
1: I'll find my spot.
2: Good. So... I feel like certainty is probably going to be a recurring theme on this podcast. Given, I think, all of our backgrounds in a kind of religious fundamentalism, certainty is something that we've all struggled with and tried to come to grips with. Can I be certain about this, this being God and faith and all of that stuff? Um, so if you wouldn't mind telling us a bit about your background and how you became interested in that topic, you can make that as religious or as secular as you want.
3: Yeah, so um, I kind of came at this from or at least my research I came at, from, from two different strains. I, I, had, I grew up in a fundamentalist background, as, as you mentioned. I uh, grew up Southern Baptist. Uh, I've, I've been part of a, a variety of fundamentalist churches over the years. And even as a child, I remember being 10, 11, 12, I, I had this kind of religious impetus toward understanding why God would choose prophets. It seemed very mm-hmm. odd to me that God would choose people for special revelation. It, it seemed unjust. Uh, I, what, what echoed was always that story uh, that we have about Saul, where where uh, you have Israel and, and they're demanding that they have a king, and, and God says, why? And then Samuel before him, uh, and in fact, I know Jason Upton will be on the podcast uh, uh, in the future, at least you're planning on it. When I was a, a teenager, I heard Jason Upton preach about this, uh, about Samuel and the 400 years of waiting uh, to hear God's voice before that. And that seemed right to me, right? right. It seems odd that all of a sudden God is speaking to one person. If God wants to have a relationship with people, then he should have a relationship with all people. It should be universally ac- accessible. And uh, this is a thought process that I later found out was uh, reminiscent to an Islamic philosopher named Abu Bakr al-Razi, who basically said, there are no prophets. This is entirely ridiculous. If you believe in prophecy, then you believe that God is not just. Uh, he actually calls the, the prophets... Uh, uh, to use billy goats because they have the long beards. And so they put on an affectation <laughs> of being impressive. But but in fact, uh, really, they have no more access to certainty than anyone else does, because the way that you get certainty is through philosophy, through reason. Uh, so, so I had this kind of inclination. <laughs> that, the, yeah, uh, so I had this kind of inclination when I was younger that there had to be a kind of egalitarian notion to why God speaks to certain people. And I wasn't able to find it, particularly in the Southern Baptist Church. Uh, and the reason why is because they're not just fundamentalists, they're, they're kind of uh, closed off in terms of the way Revelation unfolds. I, I have a kind of a, not the historical idiosyncrasies, but I have a kind of montanist bent, uh, the, the idea that, that uh, everything's unfolding religiously, uh, it doesn't ever end, the Bible's not the capstone or something like this. And so... That was one thing that was happening for me religiously for a long time, but then there was this other just purely intellectual thing that I was going through, and it became a huge crisis for me during high school, which was I had no hermeneutics to read the Bible. I grew up in a fundamentalist church, and I was taught that absolute inerrancy, the, the literal, the, the understood literal uh, meaning of the text was the important meaning. And I just got obsessed with the problem of evolution. And I, God bless him, my my AP biology teacher, Mr. Wagner, who is an atheist, and was so kind to me because I know I was so obnoxious. I, <laughs> but I was I was being intellectually honest. It wasn't I wasn't I wasn't into any of these uh, apologetics movements or anything like this. I I know Kyle has a history of kind of being part of a school that's teaching you certain strategies. That that's not what I was doing. I was just desperately going through the process of trying to understand evolution honestly and understand why it was wrong. And Mr. Wagner was so nice, he would tell me, oh, yeah, actually, scientists haven't figured out that part yet. Uh, that's a really good question. And, and I would go, and I was, I was encouraged, and I thought I was making progress bit by bit by bit. And then I had a friend that asked me a question about how something in the world worked. And I gave him a perfectly cogent and coherent evolutionary answer. And at that moment, I realized, ah, oh, I do believe this. I believe this. And so that was the, uh, the moment when I realized to be intellectually honest, I was going to have to change my hermeneutics. And uh, I. You want to
2: define hermeneutics for us, real yeah, quick? Yeah.
3: Yeah. So, in a narrow sense, hermeneutics is the way we read the Bible. In a broader sense, it's the way you read anything. Uh, It could be the way you read experience. It could be the way you read historical texts. Uh, It becomes very important for someone who does the history of philosophy on what your hermeneutics are. But in this case, I, I was worried about how I can read the Bible. How can the Bible be true and the first two chapters of Genesis not be the way I always understood them to be? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so I went to I went to Vanderbilt, which is where I did my undergrad. And I was a religious studies and philosophy major. I was a philosophy major just for the kicks. And <laughs> I was sure that that by doing these history and critical theory of religion courses, I was going to find an answer. I was going to find some kind of hermeneutics. Uh, that was going to allow me to read the Bible and not to denigrate uh, anyone that that is in history and critical theory of religion. But I just found more confusion there. And and I found a lot of people that were dissatisfied with their own hermeneutics. And I wasn't getting the answers I was expected. And then I walked into a medieval philosophy class, and it was being taught by Len Goodman, and I was introduced to Maimonides. And in this entirely different field where I never expected it to show up, I found something that kind of answered all my, all my questions.
1: Okay, so, Nick, uh, I've got a number of questions already. First one what's Maimonides? <laughs>
3: Okay, so so, so Maimonides, uh, uh, Rabbi Moses ben Maimon, uh, Rambam, in, in in the Jewish uh, in the Jewish Orthodox community, he he's a great codifier of Jewish law. He's this wonderful thirteenth century uh, Jewish philosopher who actually is living in the Muslim world, and so he's receiving all the richness of Muslim philosophy and using it for his own ends. And he's someone that's very, very concerned. I have a very different understanding of him now than I did then, but he's someone that's very, very concerned with the question of how reason and religion can fit together, which is really where the heart of my research lies.
1: Well, that's super fun. Kyle skipped to business right away, but I would like to know what you're drinking because this is obviously <laughs> a pastor and a philosopher walking to a bar. I was told that you have something special.
3: Oh, yeah. So, so what I'm actually drinking is... A, um, <laughs> Uh, Blackberry Spindrift because I'm I'm a dad and I don't have time to do these things um, but for the sake of the podcast what I'm drinking is uh, my Gifting Whiskey which is a, a Bellmead single barrel uh, this is actually aged in uh, A sherry casks and so it's a it's a single barrel it's number it's casks number uh, 3258 it's uh, 110 proof so it's strong stuff and uh, it's delicious
1: wow so is that a scotch or a bourbon
2: it's a bourbon like, okay and he's semi-promised me a bottle. Semi, I'm going to yeah, hold him to it.
3: Yeah, it, the, the, <laughs> Every season it's it's a limited edition. So I said the next time that I saw him, I was going to get it for him as a dissertation defense. Congratulations. But uh, who knows when that's going to be now. Um, and so, so who knows how many bottles they'll have left at that point in time.
2: Yeah. Bell Mead is good stuff it's it's
3: local I, i'm I'm in Nashville so so I, I came back to to live with my wife in Nashville Vanderbilt's obviously here so this is where we met as undergraduate students and so I'm representing local I know that you guys like to represent the Milwaukee area but uh, my wife was always here and so I never quite felt like Milwaukee was home Nashville's home for me
1: love it so I'd like to know if we could get you Nick to promise to give a gift of Bell Mead to Kyle and then can we get Kyle to promise to bring <laughs> some to sample on this podcast
2: yes i'm happy with that whatever makes it more likely that i get it (laughs) so uh,
3: so i'm unwilling to make that promise because i'm not certain that i can fulfill it (laughs)
2: here we go
1: certainty (laughs) such a bitch (laughs) so nick you you jumped into you grew up southern baptist you Mm -hmm. sounded like you had the had had the mind of a scholar from a young age on And, and by that i mean you were just curious it sounds like would you say yeah
3: yeah so um when I say this I, I I want to be clear i I think this is a s- systemic problem it's not something any individual did but but I wouldn't say it was the mind of a scholar i I felt like I had the mind of a weapon uh in the sense that the the people around me saw that I was clever and they thought that they could put that to good use hmm. and, and, and 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 again i I am not suggesting at all any malicious intent by any of any of the people that I'm talking about because in their heads this was something that was apparently true that this was obviously for the good of the faith, these kinds of things. And, and and so I was encouraged to to challenge myself intellectually because I was going to be a defender of the faith or something along these yeah. lines. And I was always encouraged in that kind of way. Sheesh. But there was this kind of pressure toward being able to defend the truth. And luckily, I was also around a lot of people that were at least 100% sincere. Right, there there's nothing malicious or underhanded about it. And so so when they encouraged me to pursue the truth, they were doing it fearlessly. And and so I internalized it in a way that I wasn't worried about finding a truth that was uncomfortable because the truth mm. Is comfortable. The truth is what we're seeking, and so, so, so because of that, I did feel a little bit of a permission structure to to think weird thoughts, and and eventually, I ended up leaving the Southern Baptist Church and and going to some more charismatic churches where they thought very weird thoughts. I thought very weird thoughts at the time, but uh, in, in in the midst of all of that, it, it created a kind of uh, permission structure for me to follow arguments where they lead, which is the philosophical mindset.
1: Got it. You went from charismatic to where then.
3: I hope I'm a Christian. Every single mm-hmm. day, I hope I'm a Christian. I, I in, in, the, in, the, in the common vernacular of the word, I'm a Christian. I pray. I, I, I engage with people in the church. Um, I care about the church mm-hmm. quite deeply. I'm annoyed with the church quite mm-hmm. deeply at times, mm-hmm. uh, the way that I'm annoyed with friends and family, because this is what it is to love something. Mm-hmm. But the idea of, of defining it or or pigeonholing or or anything like this, I find all of this very destructive because I find orthodoxy destructive. And so, mm. I'm I'm not going to uh, I'm not going to put a label. Yeah. But also, I'm not going to put a like, oh, I'm non denominational, which is like this <laughs> other label, right? No, no
2: I, I don't want to label it, but I also don't want to not label. It.
3: <laughs> yeah, I I'm, I'm a person, and I I care about the truth, and um, I I, I firmly believe that one of the central promises of the gospel is is the idea of asking, seeking, and finding. And hmm. so so I'm not really worried about any of that because I know what I'm asking for, I know what I'm seeking, and I know what eventually I'll find. Or I won't.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm.
3: that's the way life is.
1: It's fascinating. So can you tell us why uh, you think orthodoxy is destructive, dangerous?
3: Yeah, so th- this gets back to Maimonides. So Maimonides is a recipient of Al-Farabi, the guy that I, that I focus on. And the entire premise of what religion is for Al-Farabi and then later for Maimonides is that religion is a poetic expression of philosophical truths. Religion has no special access to truth whatsoever. It's it's just making images that people that can't understand philosophy are able to engage with. And so when that happens, the role of the prophet changes and it stops being about I'm expressing truth in, in a kind of axiomatic way. And it becomes about I am functioning in a certain kind of role in society in a political role to allow people to live good lives because if you make a certain kind of good associations and images then people pursue certain kinds of goods right temperance the virtues and so the goal in that entire process is ultimately truth for those that are able to gain access to truth but more importantly it's habituation it's it's orthopraxy and something I found, and, and, and perhaps if, if you were going to label any of my experience with fundamentalism as a trauma, I think it's this, the, the idea that in fundamentalism, your beliefs can be weaponized against you, which is a peculiar thing because you can't choose what you believe. Right Right This idea that faith is something that that we will ourselves toward is, is ludicrous right that's, that's not what belief is. Belief is something that you need to be comfortable being honest about. And so other religions I think, do this better than Christianity does, frankly. The idea that you can be part of a community and again, I, I, I'm not trying to suggest that, that either Judaism or Islam don't have their own versions of of orthodoxy that are every bit as as pernicious and constraining as, as fundamentalism in Christianity is. But quite often you can see expressions of communities where here are, are two members of a Jewish congregation that feel that they're in community with one another. One of them believes in God, one of them doesn't. They are still part of the same community. They're still both Jewish, according to one another's definition. They still both follow Torah, and so they're part of a community because they're part of a certain kind of orthopraxy. There's a, a certain kind of way of being, of doing life, of, of, of being in the world. And and so that doesn't break your community. There's something really weird about the idea of, who's your family? The church is my family. What happens once you believe in evolution? You are no longer part of the church.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: That's weird. The, the idea that that if you think something different, all of a sudden you are going to be broken off from your family. That's abuse. Mm,
1: mm-hmm. So this is fascinating. And th- these questions aren't on the, the list that we sent you. Yeah, punches, yeah but it's fine. You just said you, you can't choose your beliefs. That's fascinating. Can you can you flesh that out a little bit?
3: Yeah, I, I mean, people do what they believe. Cal and I were actually having a conversation about this a, a few weeks ago. I, I, I think I was annoying him because, because I, I rejected the distinction between believing and acting. Hmm. Right. So, be, because at the end of the day, a lot of people say that they believe in things. But then they don't do anything about it. Yes. And that's not a belief, right? Yes. Right. You, you say, oh, oh, I believe that racism is bad. And then I keep voting for racists, mm. right? You don't believe that racism is bad. You believe that it's permissible,
1: mm. Mm.
3: right? Mm. Right. You don't actually hold that belief. Just because you have the thought in your head occasionally that, that oh, I'm, I'm considering this proposition. I consider a lot of ludicrous propositions. I have a three-year-old. And so every single time we imagine, I consider ludicrous propositions. I never believe I'm a unicorn. <laughs> it, it, right? I consider it, but then at the end of the day, I act like a human being. So that's clearly the, the, the firmer underlying belief. And so when it gets back to the, the story that I was talking about in terms of me having that realization about intellectual honesty and in, in the issue of evolution, well I knew I didn't actually believe fundamentalism anymore because when I tried to process the world, my actions belied the fact that I cared about... The truth and the truth was that I thought in an evolutionary mindset, and and so I I, I think sometimes we we want to make these distinctions and and I, I don't think they're helpful, right? This distinction between belief and action, right? This is the entire uh, argument about faith and works, and right? Jesus rejects this distinction over and over and over mm-hmm. again, right? A tree bears fruit. What comes out of your mouth? That's that's what's in your heart, right? Right? Over and over again, we we have this rejection of the distinction between this kind of feigning of a belief and your actual being. And, and so I'm just not I'm not particularly interested in in belief that's not tethered to action. Yeah. And I I think so often that allows it to be an excuse, right? You you believe certain you say you believe a certain thing. And now all of a sudden it's used as a kind of permission structure for you not to do anything. And and so as a result of that, it it kind of separates you from what's going on in your belief. But, but when belief is something embodied, there's no separation any longer. That's and so, so, and so there, there, is no, there is no ability for you to say that, oh, well, well, I believe this thing because I want to believe this thing. Well, if you want to believe that thing, you'll be doing that thing. And if you're not doing that thing, you don't believe that thing. And, and so you can't choose who you are in the core of who you are other than by a very long process of habituation right i i'm not not saying there's not any kind of choosing that goes on in faith i i I don't want to push that radically but it's not something that you just flip on right it's not something that like like oh yeah uh someone dies and you have a moment of of crisis in your faith and then you just flip a switch it's like oh but i believe Cause I say that I believe, well, maybe you'll habituate yourself and you'll keep going to church and you'll keep doing these things and then you'll get back into a position of belief. But quite often in those moments, it's revealed by our actions, by the way that we mourn, by the way that we act that we don't. And that's okay. It's better to honestly reflect on that and, and decide whether or not that's something you want to keep pursuing rather than pretending like, oh, I'm already arrived at this other place.
1: Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. That's Fascinating. I was just I mean, this is just taking it down to the Jesus level now where I was just preaching from first John last week where the Apostle John talks about living out the truth and living you know, uh, this in chapter two he talks about living out the way of Jesus and that's how you can actually tell if if if, if you claim to know the truth and walk in the light, but you actually don't act in a certain way that is Christ like, you're actually walking in the darkness. It doesn't it doesn't compute, it doesn't make sense. The Apostle John is, you know, high fiving you from two thousand years of <laughs> you know, being dead. But um,
3: I, also- I, I, I doubt that. He doesn't know the other stuff that I'm willing to say. <laughs>
2: <Exactly>. <laughs> it's- We're not done yet. <laughs> exactly. No, that's great. This is a good segue. So the topic as build of the podcast episode is certainty. So even though that kind of overconfidence and that kind of, you know, trying to convince yourself into a belief, even though that's obviously not peculiar to religious people, Often, in my experience, it seems like certain religious structures really lend themselves to that kind of practice. They really lend themselves to a sense of feigned certainty. It's not exclusive to them, but but my God, it's common. <laughs> um, so, so in your view, what is that relationship between certainty and religious belief?
3: Yeah. So, so the problem is if you build any, if you build anything, or you let, let me rephrase it this way: if you build anything as the truth you've set yourself up to fail in your humility, right? W- w- once, once you start selling yourself as, as being the the people that have access to you or, or the the people that have a certain kind of privileged uh, um, way of understanding the truth, already you've ended the conversation. And so, and mm-hmm. by the way, the, I... I this analogy, obviously we can use religion, right? Right. The, the, the entire pastoral structure is often built around this. Not only, by the way, in denominations that I'm uncomfortable with. Right. This, this is what happens. You go into a place, and the place is oriented in a certain direction, and there is a physical space in that direction with a spotlight pointing at the, that direction, and a book that's open for someone to speak. And when they do so, they are feigning that they have some kind of privileged access to the truth to teach more than the people that are below, which might be true. But very rarely are the caveats being put beforehand. Hey, I'm going to preach. And I'm going to preach about this particular topic because I focus on this particular topic in my research. Yeah. Same thing happens in a classroom though. Yeah. Right? I, I know I know plenty of philosophy professors that are going to insist on people calling them doctors. And there are some reasons why, right? right. If, if, if you're uh, a member of a community that, that is historically disenfranchised in the academy, sometimes wearing that doctor moniker is really helpful, right? If, if you're a person of color or, or if you're a woman who, who is the professor and might deal with students not, not recognizing you as the voice of reason in the room, mm-hmm. sometimes that's a really, really helpful thing to have. I'm, I'm not denigrating this practice entirely, but I know some people that use it purely as a whip. It's purely to, to prevent students from engaging with the research in a way that questions in a way that, that is not satisfying to the professor at the moment. And, mm-hmm. and at the end of the day, expertise shows out, right? If you genuinely have expertise, you don't really have to use any of these tools, which, which gets back to the, the, the notion that we find in Al-Farabi and, and Maimonides, right? The idea of truth as being expressed as poetic symbols. Someone else wrote about this and did not come to the conclusion that Al-Farabi and Maimonides did, which is Plato. And Plato kicks out the poets from the city. Why? Because what do the poets do? They lead the people astray because all they do is they give images. They, they basically give these things that are pleasant for people, but they're not backed by anything. And he does consider, at one point in time in the Republic, he says, perhaps we could consider a more austere and less pleasure-giving poet. And this could be useful for the communication of philosophy. And this is where the the Phoenician tale, the noble lie comes from, for those of you that are familiar with the Republic. And that's what Al-Farabi is building off of in his philosophy is this idea that, well, we can use images in a useful way to train people toward truth. But the first thing is that you need to know the truth and then you can get images that link up to the truth in a proper way. But I mean, I've walked into lots of churches and almost all of them have smoke machines and pleasant music. And very few of them are concerned about truth.
2: I should tell you, Elliot used to be the guy that ran the smoke machines in the pleasant music. So. This is great. <laughs> Maybe I should have announced that. No, that's, that's,
3: that's fine. I, I, again, I'm, I'm ornery and willing to offend. This is the philosophical tradition, right? We, we model our behavior after a guy who is so insufferable that more people voted to kill him than people that thought he was guilty. Literally, the jury yeah. barely said that he was guilty, and then a vast majority said that he should die. That's He's how annoying Socrates,
2: Socrates is. I, personally, one of my favorite philosophical quotes is from Kierkegaard, and I don't remember the exact reference, but he describes himself and his, his mission as making things more difficult. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it is my job as a religious person, as a Christian, he would say, to make this harder for you.
3: <laughs> yeah, so mm-hmm. so I, I, I don't know where we are in time. I know that eventually you want to... Uh, Ask, ask some questions about evangel- evangelism, but but I think this is precisely the problem with evangelism, right? You you have this uh, you have this structure that shows up in the New Testament, and again, I, I want a caveat, right? We're talking about certainty here. We're talking about epistemic humility. When I'm talking about scriptural interpretation here, I'm providing a hermeneutic that, that I know quite well, but I very few biblical scholars are going to be okay with the way that I'm using any of these scriptures. So so so, so ignore it at your leisure. That's fine. Time um,
1: off for a second, Doctor Nick epistemic humility <laughs> <laughs> epistemic humility can you describe that for our non philosophical
3: yeah so so all i mean by that is episteme what you believe what you know right so so epistemic mm-hmm. is just talking about knowledge and so being humble about that right so 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 one of the things that happens with the issue of certainty is that people think certainty means conviction and certainty has nothing to do with conviction so so many people really believe in something firmly mm-hmm. 100% the whole way down but they're wrong and the reason why they're wrong is because they're they're not equipped with the methods that are reliable that allow them to know right uh w- one of the principles that shows up in Plato and then shows up in Al-Farabi it shows up in the Pro- Proclean tradition Proclus the Arabic Proclus and shows up in Aquinas actually and in the Latin uh it, it's a uh, quid quid recipitur uh Ad modem, uh, Recipientius Recipiter, right?
2: I think we the, just found our, our episode title there. Yeah. Uh,
3: <laughs> so, the, so, so the Latin is, is uh, uh, that which is received is received according to the mode of the receiver. And so one of the things Aristotle talks about in Topics 1, one of the things that that farabi is absolutely obsessed with, is that the mode by which you know matters right? Hmm. The, the way that you know matters. Hmm. And, and certainty isn't just about examining what you believe and have conviction of. It's examining the method that you gained that knowledge through. It, it's examining, is this a universalizable doctrine that other people can have access to this truth as well? Is this testable in, in, in a kind of way of experiencing the world? And most people's conception of certainty doesn't involve any of that. And so epistemic humility is recognizing that when you receive something, you're receiving it in the mode of the receiver. And in this case, for all of us, the receiver is an ape-like creature that walks around and we have no reason (laughs) to believe uh, is oriented toward finding the truth all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Human beings are fallible. We make mistakes. So no one should ever presume, uh, even though Al-Farabi does, even though Maimonides does, no one should ever presume that we have access to absolute certain knowledge, and so, uh, when someone presents their images as being certain, they present the images as the truth wholesale. It's a kind of deception, which is why my work focuses on political deception. And by political, I just mean the kind of deception that happens in groups.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I think a lot of what you articulated right there is so you know, on such a high level, I, I was I'm listening, and I'm just as a pastor walking with people who've put together or had this worldview and, and faith journey that's been put together and given to them by, you know, their family and by their church, by all that stuff. And they've realized, they gotten to the point where you just articulated, where um, this wasn't a reliable way that um, that my faith was constructed, that what I believe actually was put together. It was it was in a faulty method, and, mm. and now all of a sudden it's all falling apart, and I don't know what to do. Or... It's actually a freeing thing. But for most people, it's actually a scary thing to realize that all of what I've believed for the last, you know, the first 20 years of my life, first 30 years of my life, the foundation's rotten.
3: Yeah. One of the things that Plato says in Book Two of The Republic, which I think is really helpful to think about, is he, he talks about what he calls true lies. And and, and and this isn't the noble lie. This isn't a lie that somehow is able to imbue truth, at least according to Plato, he thinks that the noble lie does this. Uh, What he means is a real lie, a lie that is damaging. And Mm -hmm. what a true lie is, is a lie in the place of your soul that is involving the highest things. Because when it comes to the highest things, no one wants to be wrong in that place, most Mm -hmm. of all. And he says that it's hated by gods and men. And I think something that's happened... I, I think something that is true about human nature but 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 I, I I see it as being pernicious in kind of the the structure of the way some of the American white Christian church I want to clarify who I'm talking about here is that the fear of being wrong in that part of your the soul is so strong that it's more important not to find out that you're wrong than to actually be right right you mm-hmm. you care more about the appearance of being settled in that place than caring about whether you are authentically engaging in the truth in that place because you're right it's terrifying it's terrifying not to know the truth right all of us want to know the truth there's nothing wrong with being scared about the prospect of holding falsehood in oneself but there's something liberating and freeing about recognizing where falsehood exists because at least at that moment you have a little truth right? Uh, when you get refuted, you, you have this, this liberating feeling. You might not know uh, in the refutation if the person that refuted you, if their position is right, but you do know that your old position was wrong. That's a true proposition you can build off of. And that's mm-hmm. helpful.
1: Mm-hmm. But
3: most, most people don't like being wrong. They'd rather mm-hmm. seem to be right than actually be right.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm having a fun time. Oh, <laughs> <of course. laughs> just, just let it be known.
3: I, I I I meant to be much more uh, obstinate than this. I'm, I'm being more
1: friendly <laughs> than intended. So, Nick, two questions: one personal, one not. The personal one being: I'm impressed by your passion for the truth and your unwillingness to compromise what's true for the sake of what you believe. And yet, you say. I, I still hope I'm a Christian how did you get there how do you how do you still say I hope I'm a Christian while saying i I really have this high value of truth it's encouraging to me as a pastor and as a Christian but
3: yeah so I mean I'm not going to give you a sophisticated philosophical answer here i i'm I'm a Christian because I keep doing Christian things right I like i i remember so so after my mom died I remember I, I had this this kind of crisis of faith. This was shortly after. I I'd, I'd found my hermeneutics, but it still wasn't perfectly satisfying to me because I was trained to, what, to believe what I was supposed to believe. And I remember I, I was sitting as an undergraduate out, out in one of the common areas of, of Vanderbilt's campus. And I remember I was telling God how much I didn't believe in him anymore. And mm-hmm. someone who tells God they don't believe in him believes in God. One of th- two things is true. And, and I, I don't deign to know which one it is. Either I am so habituated to Christianity that Christianity is meaningful to me. Uh, there, there's a medieval work called the Kazari that uh, uh, it talks about the the conversion of the king of the Khazars to, to Judaism. But before he does this, he gets a dream from God, and, and God tells him to convert to the true religion, so he has to find out which one it is. And all these people make speeches. A philosopher makes a speech. A Christian makes a speech. Uh, my favorite one, though, is when, when, the, um, when the Muslim comes in to make the speech, one of the things that, the, that the, the Muslim speaker says is, proof of the truth of Islam is the beauty of the Quran. There has been no book that is more beautiful than the Quran, and so you must know this is the truth. And the king of the Khazars, which obviously this is being written by Judah Halevi, a Jewish author, right? So this is tongue-in-cheek by the author put into the king of the Khazar's Khazar's mouth. He says this wonderful line where he says, My friend, I believe that the Quran is the most beautiful book to you. And perhaps if I was raised on its images, I too would agree. But basically what what he's saying tongue-in-cheek there is like, no, it's not. Mm-hmm. But but he's not saying it, he's saying it in this polite way. And it's entirely possible that the reason why I find this idea of the infinite becoming finite, because that's the that's the hook for me, right? Mm. The idea that that what love is, what goodness is, is not mere benevolence. It's not that God created a good world and then kind of let it hang out. It's not deism. The the hook is this kind of superrogatory story, this idea of of a love that overcomes what its own limits are right. The infinite as being not just a large number, but the infinite as being something that overcomes even the limitations it sets for itself. And then yeah. by doing that becomes finite. That's a really interesting idea to me, but I was raised on this idea. I, I find the images of it beautiful. And so it might be that I'm just hooked on the images mm-hmm. and, and I, I have to acknowledge that that's a possibility it's also possible that the reason why I keep getting drawn to it is because some part of me, some, some intuition within me thinks it's really true. And I, I, I can't say that maybe there's not some hook there, right? That the, the, the something keeps pulling me back that's external to me. I don't know which it is. I don't think I'll ever know which it is.
1: Yeah. I, I love it, Nick. Would, as a philosopher who really, would you say, loves reason and truth and reality— perhaps I, I, am i still still on the right track
3: yeah so so i wouldn't use the word love right right okay. I, it I, I, there's <laughs> an itch no yeah. no not even that there's an itch right <laughs> okay. I, I i i am a compulsive truth teller okay. right i it's it's i i really don't feel there's a choice about it i i maybe cal can speak to this more but 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 it's like when you see me engage with other people's philosophical work, which most philosophers are like this. So luckily we have grace for one another, but like Kyle has presented papers in front of me and I'm sure it's miserable because my face is scrunching up and I'm like wiggling in my chair and I want to object. And it's like, it's just, it's just bursting out of me. And it's not something I'm doing willfully. I like really, I mean my, my poor family, right. If I could choose to be otherwise, I would, (laughs) but I can't, -hmm. It's it's just to the soles of my feet. This is this is the thing that drives me. It's 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 a compulsion, and Mm -hmm. and so one of two things is true. Uh, Again, I keep doing this, right? (laughs) I, I kind of give these probabilistic ways of viewing the world because I'm not certain. Either philosophy is the method by which we attain the truth in the best manner we get closest, or Socrates is someone that had some fascinating mental illness and got a lot of people on board. <laughs> and I mean, from the inside of what it's like to do philosophy, the latter seems a little bit more probable to me, honestly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> nice, good. Let me I was asking I, or I started down that route because I'm interested to know you you had your time in the charismatic crew for a while and and I enjoy good charismatic experience and the feel, feel of the spirit of God, the supernatural. And I'm sure, I'm sure you have a fun and, uh, you know, worth hearing take on, uh, how reliable or how do you fit that into your experience? Things that you felt that were outside of your own body, perhaps.
3: There's a, uh, there, there's a 20th century pragmatist who I think deals with this nicely, William James, who, who talks about the varieties of religious experience and he, he deals with this as a philosopher and ultimately argues that religious experience is authoritative for the person that experiences it. Mm-hmm. Because they've experienced it. It's, it's direct. But that doesn't mean it's authoritative for people outside. And that that that's kind of my inclination about these kinds of things. I, I honestly don't know. I, I, I am simultaneously drawn to that community in certain kinds of ways. I, I still am. There, there's a certain kind of certainty that that allows, right, direct experience that, that I'm not sure I believe in. But but that's satisfying, right? I mean, the idea that, that, oh, yeah, I've experienced God's presence and therefore I I do it. I also can look at a lot of the people that are in that community, and I'm not going to name any names in particular, mm-hmm. but, but a lot of people that I found reputable, that I bought into when I was a much younger person, that I think are... Charlatans, like I, 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 think that they, they are not, not, not mistaken. I, I'm not talking about people that that are sincere and just don't believe the right thing, which I think everyone should have the freedom to do. But, but these are people that know they are deceiving other people, mm-hmm. and, and actively choose to deceive other people. And again, I'm not going to name names, because I also think that there are a lot of genuinely sincere people that are not doing that. I also know about some of the psychological tricks, that you can imitate these things in other religions, you can imitate these things with, with other rituals, because it's the images that are so important. If you notice, the reason why a lot of these, these uh, faith healings and things like this, they work, they work in very particular contexts right? There's a specific tone of voice that is affected. There is a specific type of music that goes on in the background. There's a specific number of people that happen. And, And there is this kind of psychological effect that is very, very powerful. Now, maybe that's powerful because, as they would say, worship brings the presence of God and does this really miraculous thing. Or maybe the reason why this can be found in other places is because, human beings care about ritual and care about images. And so there's there's a very, very strong um, effect of, of of willing it into existence almost almost like a sugar pill would be, right? The that you can you can heal yourself by believing you're taking proper medication. I don't know which it is. I I mean I, I'm inclined toward being very skeptical of, of this community, but I also I, I almost feel per- perhaps the, this community has has a, a stronger hold on me because I have very very dear friends who are still all in on it and I I value them I value their voices but I mean as as a philosopher I'm very very skeptical.
1: Okay, two follow up questions. One for both of you. Well, actually, both for both of you. It's, is that okay? So, as a philosopher, then as philosophers, when we think about how to build our faith and how to how to how to, how to coherently think about it in a reasonable fashion, basing our faith 100% or a majority of it off of supernatural experience, you know, in, in quotes, seems like a pretty unhealthy thing to do, to me even. But using supernatural experience as a piece of the reason why I still follow this certain faith tradition, that seems that seems like intellectually that it has some integrity to it, would you say? Or should we throw out experience altogether?
3: Can, can I ask a follow-up before you, you answer, Carl? I'll, I'll, I'll let you answer this first, but what do you mean by faith? If,
1: by faith, what I believe in, my set of beliefs about life, reality, and a, a higher power.
3: Okay, so... But, uh, okay, I'll, I'll let
2: Kyle answer, and then, and then I'll... <laughs> <leave it. Yeah. laughs> so let me make sure I understand the question. A hundred percent experience or, bad,
1: or vast majority
2: partially experience good.
1: Yeah, it's 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 one of the pieces.
2: Yeah, you and by experience you mean supernatural experience.
1: Experiencing somehow the presence of God, seeing a miracle happen, uh, having it happen to me, getting the shivers, get it, you know, having hands warm. You know, there's a million things that you mm. could say.
2: Okay, good, that helps. So I want to draw a line between experience and. Uh, what you might call uh, manifestations of the Holy Spirit, okay. as described in the New Testament. That seems to be what you're focused on. Mm-hmm. Because if we mean just experience, generally my view is that there isn't anything else. So 100% of my religion is experience, okay. but but not 100% of it is manifestations of what the Holy Spirit is. Okay. So I'll just tell you in my own experience, when it gets down to brass tacks, why am I a Christian? To use Nick's vernacular why do i keep acting in this way it's big it's almost entirely at this point but let's say 75% because of experiences that i had where i felt like jesus was present in the room and and you know i i have really really good friends who i trust and i know they're not making it up who tell me about some really crazy shit that's happened to them and you know maybe at one point in my life that was part of it but like at least 75% of my religious faith right now is because of particular experiences of god's presence that i've had and the rest of it is just cuz it kind of makes sense of the world to me we've talked about that before and you love that um, so love and all so love. that is my that is my experience and obviously i think that's healthy <laughs> or i wouldn't because something wouldn't that's do it something
1: that you can trust is that that's something that's it's, sexual... felt an experience.
2: Well, as Nick described, talking about William James, it's something unavoidable to me. The question of whether or not I can trust it doesn't even come in. Uh, If it came in, then I would have to be a skeptic about everything. Okay. Because I trust it in the same way that I trust that I see you right now. My perceptual experience is just as true to me as that experience that I had, which is why a lot of Calvinists describe it as a separate sense, by the way. God's presence is just like the other senses that you have physically. I think they're right about that. Hmm. If I doubt that, I doubt everything.
3: Okay. Fun fact, a post-Kantian named Rudolf Otto wrote a way that had holiness as a uh, separate category of the understandings in a Kantian framework. And I presented a paper on this at the very first time I met Kyle as undergrads. uh, (laughs) And we bumped into each other. And then we met again in grad school and we didn't know that we had met until probably a year into our friendship. And then we remembered each other's papers and how bad we thought each other one, each other's papers were. Uh, <laughs> th- this separate sense of experience. I actually went ways. and
2: found a notebook where I was taking notes at that conference and oh, I no. got to your paper and it was just blank. Because <laughs> <laughs> I checked out right at the beginning. <laughs> so
3: so I, I, I think there might be some confusion between what should orient our lives Right, right. What, what should be a constitutive factor of the way that we act and truth? Right. I think that things that you find beautiful should affect the way that you behave, mm-hmm. but they don't give you access to the truth. Hmm. Right. The fact that you have certain kind of aesthetic, aesthetic tastes doesn't actually give you a kind of privileged access. So, so let's say you, uh, you really enjoy uh, being on top of a mountain and enjoying a sunset. Okay, great, Do that, but that doesn't mean that you somehow have found the meaning of other people's lives in that process. you haven't found the the nature of what it is to be a human being or something like this that you have to stand on a mountain, you have to face west and you have to enjoy the sunset right the, the, no that that's not what that's not what the human life is about and the reason why we can't trust i at least I don't think that we can trust these kinds of religious experiences as religious experience in this very particular way, right? Because I, I as, as Kyle said, I think this is a nice way of rejecting a distinction that I don't think is appropriate, right? We always, every single time we do something religiously, which I would say is always, we're always being religious, every person is always being religious, and every person is always being political. But, but every single time that you're doing one of these activities, and now we've gone into this kind of mystical mode, well, it might be true. But if it is true, it's true accidentally. And, and what I mean by this is a very technical sense of the term, which is you don't know the method by which you feel that thing. And if you don't know the method by which you feel that thing, you can't be certain in your feeling of that thing. And in fact, in a lot of charismatic communities, they acknowledge this because they're very worried about demons hmm. because they understand that, okay, the, even, if, even though they affirm miraculous experience all the time, they recognize that they don't know where it's coming from and so you have to be very hesitant and put, put tests to it and these kinds of things. You you see this in the Bible as well about prophecy, right? The The idea of testing prophets. Because there's something going on there. Who knows what that is? But you don't know where it's coming from, why it's happening, and what kind of truth value it has. And so the idea of basing your life in terms of the way that you know the world on something that you don't know where it's coming from, well, that's that's dubious philosophically but saying something along the lines of oh well when i go to worship at this particular place i i enjoy it quite a bit i have this kind of sensation mm-hmm. assuming that it's not not in line with the values that you're getting from other more reliable sources i don't, I don't think think there's a harm in that right there are mm-hmm. lots of things that we as humans do that aren't they're not based off of any rational activity other than their other than pleasure. Insofar as pleasure is a rational activity, but, but, but it's just, it's aesthetically nice to us. And, and mm-hmm. I think that's fine. I, I know, I know that charismatics are going to be very upset with that answer. I, I, I don't mean <laughs> to, I don't mean to belittle their experience. I would have been upset about that answer at a previous point in time in my life, mm-hmm. but anytime that, that someone is vying for power, because that's what it is. That's what truth is all the time. Anytime you're conveying truth, you're, you're basically asserting power. Anytime someone is vying for power and you can't see the mechanisms by which they're worthy of that power, you should be skeptical.
0: Friends, before we continue, we want to thank Story Hill BKC for their support. Story Hill BKC is a full menu restaurant and their food is seriously some of the best in Milwaukee. On top of that, Story Hill BKC is a full-service liquor store featuring growlers of tap, available to go, spirits, especially whiskeys and bourbons, thoughtfully curated regional craft beers, and 375 selections of wine. Visit storyhillbkc.com for menu and more info. If you're in Milwaukee, you'll thank yourself for visiting Story Hill BKC, and if you're not, remember to support local. One more time, that's storyhillbkc.com.
2: There's a really common example when people are talking about the context of your belief and how it can affect the justifiability or the reasonableness of holding that belief. Let's say you're in a strange town and you don't know how to get around and you need to find the bank. And so you approach a stranger on the street and you ask, Can you tell me where the bank is? And this person says, Yeah, just go up a couple blocks, take a left, bank, right there. And you form the belief that the bank is where that person said, okay? unbeknownst to you, you're in a town where everybody lies. Now, under normal circumstances, wouldn't be anything strange about this belief at all. You'd form the belief that the bank is over there, it'd be totally justified, because given your past experience, that's how beliefs work. People don't lie about that stuff. But then you find out that this is a town of liars. Now, let's assume for the sake of argument that this person was the one honest person in that town. Is your belief justified? And the answer of contemporary epistemology is no. No. Even if that person happens to be telling the truth, you form a belief that is true and under normal circumstances would be justified. In this case, it's not because of the context. Or another simpler example, you have a watch that's been really successful the whole time you've had it. You look at the time, it says it's 1230. It really is 1230. You form the belief that it is 1230. But unbeknownst to you, your watch died 12 hours ago. Is that a justified belief? Mm-hmm. No because the method by which it was formed is no longer reliable. Mm -hmm. So, even if in this particular case that was a genuine word from God, me as a spectator, my epistemic responsibility is to not believe it or to be very, very suspicious of it. Okay. So, that's a similar answer from a very different context. Yeah, yeah.
3: Chiming in for philosophers uh, listening... I, I actually like this example, and aerosol would be fine with it, too. So, so I know it's contemporary. <laughs> I, I know the examples are contemporary. Give, give them credit. But, but, but this, this caring about method is right there in Topics 1. It's, this, is, this is a yeah. foundational philosophical principle.
2: I have a good friend who got saved because he was sitting in a worship service repeating a phrase to himself. Someone at a different part of the room stands up and speaks in tongues. Someone from the other side of the room stands up and translates and it's the exact phrase he was repeating to himself. Mm-hmm. I've seen really crazy stuff. Yep, yep. And for all of it, my responsibility, both as a philosopher and also as an individual, is to ask: Does believing that that was what it was claimed to be is that reasonable for me, given the evidence that I possess? And the answer almost always is no. Uh, now. If that thing was really meaningful to me and that thing changed my life, and I've had words that changed my life, frankly, and it plays a really good role in my life and there's no negative, uh, there's no harm done by assuming that it was true, fine. I'm fine with letting that play a positive role. I'm even fine saying that God spoke to me. Totally fine with that. But as a third party and as a philosopher, I have to ask, well, what does the evidence support? And in the overwhelming majority of cases, and this is why I'm a really bad Pentecostal, <laughs> in the overwhelming majority of cases, the work is just not done to figure out what the evidence supports. Mm-hmm. I've been at Benny Hinn uh, gatherings oh where people are slayed in the spirit, and you know they they are immediately healed of cancer and they get out of the they drop their crutches and run around the room and whatever, and nobody ever follows up with those people. Mm-hmm. Nobody ever tries to find out scientifically if they were actually healed. Of course.
3: In in, in fact, there's a specific structure that is built into this community to prevent that from occurring. So, so Mm -hmm. for example, if I, as an outsider, make the claim, okay, fine, you say you're a prophet. Great. I'm thinking of a number one to one million. Pray to God. Tell me what the number I'm thinking of is. And then the person says, wait, 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 you're testing God here. God, God's not some monkey that performs tricks for you. But that itself is a kind of a justification that allows for these to never be testable claims. There's no falsifiability here, so there's not any kind of reliable method that's provided. The idea of a truth that is only accessible in one moment, in one instance, there's no way that it's testable, and it's m- intermingled with a bunch of falsehoods all the time, that's, that's not a method that you should orient your entire life around.
1: Sure. No, I hear you. Two follow-up questions. Sorry, we're going down a rabbit hole here, but <laughs> I'm thinking of these questions. I'm wondering if the listeners are. Um, Kyle, you, you just spent a, you know, a few minutes talking about how you shouldn't trust supernatural occurrences, let's say. But then you also just said 10 minutes ago that 75% of the reason that you believe in the God that you do is because of those experiences that you've experienced. That seems yeah. contradictory.
2: I shouldn't trust them as a third party. If I'm looking out a window with my friend standing next to me, we're looking out the same window, and my friend says, hey, isn't that Joe over there? And I say, what are you talking about? There's no one out there. Mm-hmm. And he's like, look, and he guides my eyes right there. That's Joe. We just talked to him a couple hours ago. He's right there. And I say, I legitimately don't see anyone standing out this window. Now, what are, what are my responsibilities towards his belief, and what are his responsibilities towards mine? It seems obvious to me that we should both stick to our beliefs. Uh, I have no, no epistemic responsibility whatsoever to consider his belief, as stated to me, to be more strong than the evidence of my senses. And same thing is true for him. He sees him. I don't. Uh, he should absolutely conclude that he's standing out there and that something has gone wrong in me. Something similar is happening here. It's similar to what Nick said earlier about William James. It is absolutely authoritative for the person having the experience. And I've had the experience. Okay. And it is authoritative to me in the same way my perceptual experience is. But when it's happening to somebody else, and when the circumstances of that happening are easily explainable by other means, and when I know no one is actually doing the work to make those methods reliable, and, 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 and <laughs> I could keep adding to that list, um, then it becomes unreasonable for me to believe what is absolutely reasonable for someone else to believe. Mm-hmm.
3: So, so one of the things that happens in these kinds of discussions, the only people that are interested in religious experiences like this are people that have religious experiences like this. So, mm-hmm. so the questions very rarely go the other way. Or when they do, it's it's about the falsifiability of the claims and like 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 you have people that that go in and, and do documentaries and things about showing people are charlatans and these
2: kinds of things. Um, but which I, every Pentecostal should watch by the absolutely. way. Absolutely. Google yeah. Google the Four Effect and. Uh, look up some videos of some talented mediums and cold readers. Go
1: read about Jim uh, James. Jim James, yeah, yeah. It's is it no? What's his, what's his name? The Kool Aid guy.
3: Oh, J- oh, Jim oh, Jones, right?
1: Jim Jones, yeah. Jim James is a yeah. great artist, musician, uh, but uh, Jim Jones,
2: <laughs> a little wacky. Uh,
3: but but I, I, I want to just step back for a second and, and think about this in terms of the context of, of w- w- what I would call, I, I mean, this is theology, but, but, but this is firmly in, in the field of philosophy And in terms of about the nature of the divine attributes. Think about what you're saying in your theology if you're saying that this is the way that God speaks to people. Mm-hmm. If God speaks to people via this method... In his unreliable way that anyone that has been part of the Pentecostal movement knows that it is unreliable, that you get all these words of people that sometimes are giving words that enable their abuse of other people. Mm -hmm. That says something very odd about the nature of God. If this is his chosen method, right? this gets back to Abu Bakr al-Razi. Right, the idea of of special revelation.
2: Oh, him, of course.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mentioned him at the beginning. I mentioned him once. This is yeah, don't worry about. It. The We're going to edit Roman all jackets. of that out. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the guy they call the prophets, Billy goats, jackasses, right? Mm-hmm. The tears mm-hmm. because they have the long long beards. Because there's something weird. If you want to say that God loves people, and then you say, "Oh, God loves all people." But he privileges certain people, and those people are responsible for telling the truth to these people, and that's the way they access the truth of God's word. And along with those people, there are going to be a bunch of false people right next to them, and those people are going to be imitating the true people in a way that allows them to enable abuse or accumulate power. And you could say, I, I understand the justifications that the, some of the, the listeners might be having. They say, well, this is a question about man's fallen nature and blah, 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 blah. And they justify it this way. But it, it, it kind of makes God a Luddite, right? Like, like as if he, ha- he hasn't adapted to the circumstances, as if he doesn't recognize that this is going on or he, he lacks omniscience or lacks omnibenevolence. Because he allows it to continue over and over and over again. It's, it's a profound problem of evil that you're pushing yourself into by affirming this.
1: Hmm. Okay. Here's, here's my perspective on your guys talking about this in the last couple of minutes. It seems, and I, I'm guessing you don't think, you wouldn't agree that this is a cynical way of looking at the world, but it sounds cynical to me. Um, it sounds like you're everything that you see needs to be broken down and te- torn apart to see if it's true, which is, as I say that, that's healthy, that sounds, that sounds reasonable, but it also sounds like you could easily be given as philosophers to cynicism. Is that just a comfortable place for you, or do you not see it as cynicism, do you see it as logic and reasonable?
2: Kyle, you want to go? Well, cynicism is named after a school of philosophy that Nick probably knows more about than I do, I'm sure so, I'm sure you're going to hear all about that in a second. I'm okay being a little bit cynical, I guess. In this, in the sense of, if if by cynical you just mean suspicious, then you, you can't you can't be a philosopher and maybe even honest an honest person and not be a little bit suspicious. And if you mean more more than that, then I'm not sure what you mean by. Yeah. Cynicism. Okay.
1: So let's say suspicious is a good word. Suspicious, overly suspicious, could be a thing. Or where does where does the hope hopeful and suspicious mm. posture Where's a healthy balance there, would you say then?
2: Yeah, so good question. So I would see the balance between hope and something like suspicion, maybe that's not the best word, but let's go with it, as similar to the balance between faith and doubt. So you, you cannot have the one unless you have the other. It is impossible to have faith without some doubt. Otherwise, it would just be belief or knowledge or certainty or something like that. Mm-hmm. Similarly, it would be impossible for me to have hope in anything if I wasn't also questioning, it, if I wasn't mm-hmm. also suspicious about it. Either I have certainty about it or I don't. And if I don't, then I either view it as something good or I don't. And if I do, then I hope for it. I want it to be mm-hmm. the case, mm-hmm. even if my evidence suggests that it's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, And and that kind of describes my relationship to a lot of core Christian doctrines at this point in my life. My evidence strongly suggests to me that resurrection is metaphysically impossible, that it's actually a kind of nonsense. But man, I hope for it. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm, I'm suspicious mm -hmm. of it, but I hope that it is true. And I think that's a reasonable position to hold. And I also think it's an unavoidable position to hold for an honest person.
3: Yeah, I I think part of this is... And this, this, again, this goes beyond Christianity. This is, this is not something that's specific to religious people. People are invested in pretending that they know things.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And there's very little reason to do that when you don't know something. right? It, it, it's, a, it's a dishonest activity to puff your chest and pretend you have knowledge where you don't. You can act without knowledge. In fact, we do all the time. You do things because you want to. You do things because you hoped to. You do things because you're intrigued by something or curious. right? You don't have to know to to act, to habituate yourself, to live. The danger of the kinds of things that you're talking about is that people are pretending like they have a certain kind of epistemic access to the truth that they don't. And I know that they don't, because if they did have epistemic access to that, they would be able to tell me the method by which they gained that epistemic access. Certainty means not just knowing, but knowing that you know, and knowing how you know. And mm-hmm. so many people pretend, oh, I've reached certainty. Why? Well, because I've had a religious experience. Or I've reached certainty. Why? Because I've been convinced of this argument. or I, There are ways to convince yourself that you've reached a certain kind of level of certainty, but you haven't actually examined it the whole way down. And pretending like you have is lying, right? By the way, this is a controversial claim that I, I'm making here. I also make it in my research. This, this is my entire point. The entire point of my dissertation and, and the conversion of it into a book that I'm, I'm trying to make is that there is no such thing as a noble lie. There is no such thing as a lie that is for someone's benefit politically. And the reason why is the only way you can construct a noble lie, the only way you can construct an image for someone's sake that is noble, presented not as an image but as the truth as it is, is if you have certainty that justifies this nobility. Because if not, you're gambling with someone else's life. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: And so if if you were to ask me the question in a different way, are you intrigued by the idea of mystical experience? Yeah, of course. It's mm-hmm. fascinating. Mm-hmm. I, I I think it's interesting. Uh, I, I I think I'm probably more in kind of a William James camp now than than I was in my younger life, where where I'm really fascinated by it, but but I'm not necessarily even close to endorsing it. But like, I like the idea. I like mm-hmm. it quite a bit. It's aesthetically very pleasing to me. I, I have these problems when it comes to the theology behind it and all these kinds of things. But, but yeah, it's intriguing. But, but that's not what people want to claim. Not that it's intriguing or that it had good practical ramifications for their lives. No, no, no. God says. Mm-hmm. The Lord speaks. They put on this air of authority that they now have a certain kind of privilege access to the truth. And I mean, frankly, if we're going to talk about in the Christian context, if we're reading the Old Testament, the the response to this every single time someone's wrong is that they get stoned, right? The, <laughs> the The scriptures recognize the danger of the idea of someone puffing themselves up and presenting themselves as an authority to the mouth of God, and yet the charismatic movement, movement doesn't engage with the negative side of things, right? They <laughs> most most often they engage with the prosperity gospel side of things,
0: right. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
3: always be skeptical of someone that's selling you something sweet. This mm-hmm. is this is a key philosophical principle. So, so the person that goes to the doctor and the doctor says, hey, you need to lose 50 pounds. I'm sorry. This is not a healthy weight for you. You are going to have problems unless you lose this weight. Well, that's an uncomfortable thing to believe. And they say, I don't like that doctor. I like the other person that's telling me that I'm okay at exactly this weight. Why? Because it's, it's more comfortable. It's more satisfying. And so you could say, man, those doctors, they're so mean. (laughs) They're so skeptical. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: They're they're saying just because I'm at high risk of a heart attack or whatever it happens to be. They're they're saying I need to change my entire life. Well, I don't want to change my entire life. And right there, you've inverted the epistemology and you've made once more important than knowledge, which is okay if you're doing it knowingly. If you're mm-hmm. saying, I don't have reason to believe this thing fully, right? I don't have certainty about this thing, but I like it and I'm going to do it. That's a choice. Mm-hmm. But if you pretend that you have knowledge and it's just the knowledge of it that's driving you, you're being dishonest with yourself and with others. And so so part of the problem with all of this is that people that... Present images, or accidents, or laws, or whatever it happens to be, out of some kind of method that isn't grounded in anything that they can share with other people, are saying, "Just trust me."
2: Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm.
3: I'm I'm making a cringy face for those those of you that that are at <laughs> home. I traditionally. People that say, just trust me rather than your own reason, don't do good things in the world.
1: Yes. Yep. <laughs> and let me just say, to bookend this this whole little section, for, for the pastor and philosophy community that's listening and maybe bent on more of the religious end, that's probably me. I'm doing what you're doing, which is having all sorts of biblical quotes that refute what these guys are saying in some way, shape, or form, or make ourselves feel better about it, whether it's test the prophets, test the prophecies at all time, and blah, blah, blah. There's all sorts of scriptures that all of us are thinking of right now that could, we could actually sling back at these guys and say, you know, we could get into a debate. I want to encourage you to just turn that down and listen. This is what I'm trying to do. I don't agree with every single thing that's been said in the last 15 minutes. But I sure do respect where these guys are coming from, and I sure do want to hold my faith in a place where I can, I can receive some criticism and I can receive some challenges and just still breathe in and out and have the world be okay and actually have that be a healthy thing, that we're actually submitting our faith, submitting our beliefs, submitting what we think is true to the light of day, and that's okay. Basically, what I'm hearing from you, what I'm taking away is pastors need a whole lot more humility. Pastors need a whole lot more honesty. So I would 100% agree with you on that. And you're actually, then when you do that, when you come from a place of epistemological humility, you're building a culture that is actually a little bit, a, quite a bit more mature, and quite a bit more. I don't think you're going to have all the faith crises that you see in the church right now when you have a little bit of epistemological humility and you hold your faith with open hands, knowing that doubts and uncertainty is just part of the thing because we're operating in faith, not certainty. And I would also say this: the word "pastor." You know, our podcast is called "Pastor and Philosopher Walking to a Bar," but I think actually think the word "pastor" is way too far stretched in our church world that, like, for me being a pa- i am not a very good pastor, to be honest with you, and I don't even look at my—if I could change my title, I would. I'm, I don't see myself as a pastor, because I see pastors as shepherds of people's souls, who, the people who are uniquely equipped or, or have that in them to walk with people and care for their souls and to hear about all of their world. That's pastoral to me that's not so much me. I'm more of a church leader. I'm more of a preacher. I'm more of a, a, a leader. And I leave the pastoring to people who are really good at that around us. But we take all of those things and we lump them into this one role, this one title called pastoring to give that man usually all the power and all the authority and what he says goes. And that's a super unhealthy dynamic. So I'm, I'm with you, Nick.
0: Hey, I know the, the book is still in progress, but is there a way that people can follow? I didn't see you on Twitter or anything like that. But is there is there a way that we could have have people aware of when?
2: No, no, I, I, <laughs> you, you. I have a website.
3: I I, uh, I so 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 I am very much of the mindset that the uh, uh, that the artists that create work and then burn it immediately afterward are, are right. <laughs> Um, I, I, I like I, I don't have anything to promote, nor am I interested in
2: promoting. Uh,
3: I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I just
2: wanted to give you the chance. I, so you I, don't j- want me to put your website in the show notes? No,
3: no, of course not. Because then people will go to my website. My website has okay, one function, so which is I'll to get me a say job.
2: For listeners, that I will absolutely not put Nicholas Oshman's <laughs> website in the show notes. No, really, O-M- really, do not C-H-M-A-N. include that. <laughs>
3: Self promotion is such an odd thing to me. And and I I would quite like to die in obscurity. Frankly, like the idea of doing a podcast is is something that I would only do as as a deep obligation I have to my friend.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was shocked you said yes. <laughs>
3: I uh, If you would have sent me the questions first, and especially if it would have been the questions about me just conjecturing about charisma for 45 <laughs> minutes, um, then I would not have. <laughs> but it is what it is.
1: Well, I'm, I'm glad that I can make you uncomfortable. You were very gracious with me, Nick. I appreciate it.
3: So what I will say is uh, I hope I wasn't uh, too frustrating. And, and, and one of the things I told Kyle was and everything that I've seen evidenced, obviously, I don't know you well, Randy, but uh, the title isn't the thing that matters for you. And so that I'm critical of the structure, I'm even critical of you in the structure because it's the structure itself that I'm critical of. I don't want you to take that uh, as me being critical of you and your activities, which no, I think is, is something really worthwhile. I appreciate and that. And Elliot, no, I don't know you, so I yeah. y- you seem like a good sound designer. Don't don't uh, <laughs> do don't put any nice music behind anything I say or they say, <laughs> except the moment when I am uh, pretending to be saying something meaningful. Then you can really it's, lay it on. The it's too,
0: It's yeah. happening right now. You it's know. it's already yeah. too late. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Nick, Nick, really, thanks for thanks
3: for being here. It's my yeah. pleasure. Thank you, guys. Mm-hmm.
0: Thanks for spending this time with us. We really hope that you're enjoying these conversations as much as we are. And if you are, help us get the word out. Before you close your podcast app, leave a rating or a review. If you'd like to share the episode you just heard with a friend or a family member, you can find those links on our social media pages. This has been a pastor and a philosopher walk into a bar.